Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Author Kathleen McMahon, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, Kathleen, your new book is called A Home Scar. Maybe first explain what a home scar is. Yeah, I'd never heard of this term before. And actually, even since the book uh, has become, uh, has been published, I've only met one person who knows what this term is. The home scar is the mark that limpets leave on a rock by leaving the rock to feed and coming back to the exact same place every time. And over time, they make an indent in the rock. And they um, find their way back. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it just seemed the perfect. It was actually my editor who, it, this appears in the novel and was my editor who thought it was the perfect title because the novel is about home and the importance of home and the scars that your exactly. past leave yeah. on you. Now, the, the kind of deus ex machina in the book then is another natural phenomenon a kind of a drone forest that reappeared in Connemara. This was a real thing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, anyone familiar with Connemara, and I've, I've been going there for years, it's such a strange, eerie landscape, isn't it? And it feels kind of empty sometimes, you know, if you're going through Mam Cross or the Ina Valley or over between uh, um, uh, Letterfrack and, and Lean Ann. There's something empty there. Yeah. And I've always been kind of fascinated by that. It feels a bit like there's ghosts there. But what? And it turns out that that whole place is forested. And maybe I'm not in my imagination run away with itself, but I think you can feel the trees there that used to be there. Okay. So this had fascinated me. And then 2014, I'm reading the newspaper and I see that a storm has uncovered one of those forests, 7,500 years old, off the southern coast of Connemara. And I jumped in the car and I went there and I kind of thought there was, was going to be a world media event. I was expecting yeah. <laughs> to see the satellite vans there. Yeah. And there's nobody there. And I kind of asked around and I asked the locals and they were just like, well, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. Anyway, eventually I got pointed to this beach and you see the stumps of these trees and they're 7,500 years old. And you see the, 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 the grains in the wood and the swirls. And it's the most moving thing. It's amazing. Is it? Yeah. And... It seemed to me the perfect opener I needed for my, no my, my novel because it would be something that would draw these characters back. The book is about two siblings, half brother and sister, who spent one summer in Connemara with their mother. And it's remembered as this really happy summer in their lives, lives that were otherwise not happy and subsequently overshadowed by tragedy. And the exposure of the drowned forest just seemed to me to say everything about what I was doing with the novel, which is about the past and how it's there, whether you face up to it or not, and whether you look at it or not, it's there, you can sense it. And at some point, maybe you want to uncover it and have a look at it and examine yeah, which, what it means to you. Which they do. And it's interesting, you say they're damaged by tragedy. You could read the book and think they were damaged by bad parenting. Yeah, I think I don't think this book is about bad parents. I think it's about imperfect parents. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um it's about people who have been affected by parents. I think there's there's a bit in the book where somebody says, We thought we were the goodies. These were parents who were damaged, who grew up in Ireland in the fifties, where if you were a bit wild or a bit arty or something, it was a hard place to be, you know? And yeah, the parents have lived these bohemian lives. 
fame is a thing. Both of the characters' fathers, they have different fathers, are famous, which I think is hard for a child. Um, the lifestyle is a bit chaotic. But I think that's a really important point in this novel is these aren't bad people. They never intended to cause any harm to their children. Yeah. To me, that's kind of terrifying. I mean, a bad parent is one thing. But the notion that a not bad parent can still cause this disproportionate outsize trauma on their children, which kind of takes a lifetime to unravel and to to get back into proportion. Yeah. And that's the story I'm telling you. Yeah. So what you're saying really is like life is complicated. Bad parents have their own stories like and, and, and possibly a bad came from bad parents themselves and stuff too. Well, but we're all kind of the product of our stories, aren't we? Yeah, and I think yeah. that's what you forget when you're a child. I mean, I've definitely had that moment. I think everybody has that moment with their parents where it suddenly dawns on you like the skies open and you realise, oh my God, they're people. You know, they're yeah. not just a mother and a father and they have their own stories that brought them this far and their own hopes for the rest of their lives. And yeah. I think that's very much a maturing process. And that's the process I'm kind of looking at in this novel of coming to understand that your parents are people and that any of the things that they did that you may have been unhappy with weren't done on purpose to, to hurt. They were done because of their own damage, you know? Yeah, yeah. Did you remember when you understood that your parents were, were people? Absolutely. I remember the exact moment with my father. I remember I was driving along in the car. I was maybe 20 and he said something and he used the word me. And it just struck me. Oh, my God. He means me the way I mean me when I say me. Um, I mean, it is strange, isn't it? But I think if you're you're, if you're a a child, they are only parents to you. That's why I never they named are, the mother are, in this they book. They are but around you. You're the centre of the universe and they're there to, uh, as slaves to you in some way. Well, I didn't name the mother in this book deliberately. And I tried out loads of names for yeah. her. But I thought she doesn't have a name. In their minds, she can't have a name because she is their mother. Yeah. And it would only be distracting. You don't think of your parents as their as their a person in themselves with their own name and their own life, you know? Yeah. And then that's central for people who were kind of damaged by their parents. You know, that whole thing of like, accept the apology, you're never going to get and move on. Like that, forgiving them and understanding is important for yourself, isn't it? I think so. I think that process of moving from judgment to empathy, and I think maybe young women are particularly judgmental. And in this novel, there's a difference between the, the, the son and the daughter. Um, and I think, you know, all those things, there's a lot of science you, involved in families. Were you judgmental of your parents? Yeah. Oh, definitely, of my mother in particular. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yes, and in I think... In what way? In all her shortcomings, as I saw them, which really? now yeah. you, you get to my age as a mother of daughters. Yeah. And kind of see it from the inside out, do you know? Yeah. And go, oh, that's where she was coming from. Or, so it that takes... was the difficulty she was having. Yeah. Um... It takes having the tables turned on you, does it? Well, I think, you know, and I think it's something really central to my work is it's really sad, but the truth is we live life forwards. We learn it backwards. It's a line that Mm. appeared in my last book. And God, we learn slow, you know. So, and perhaps only by experience. And so you become an older mother, a parent yourself. You go into menopause or whatever, and suddenly it becomes clear to you what the difficulties might have been yeah. that at the time you were just looking but at. it's too late, is it? From the outside. 
Well, I think it's never too late for forgiveness. I mean, yeah. it, and, and actually in this novel, I won't give too much of it away, but th- that's the journey the characters are going to empathy and potentially then forgiveness, which, and there's which great freedom in that. Free then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bruce Springsteen tells an amazing story and... about this in his autobiography. Uh, never mind, Bruce. Did you have to forgive your mother? Um, I think I had to, uh, yeah, stop being so bloody critical. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, I mean, no, I had a very happy childhood. Um, my parents were wonderful parents. They weren't perfect, you know, and each yeah. of them brought their own stories to their lives. And I think, um, yeah, there comes a point where you just have to understand that understand. everybody is their yeah. own story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you, funny you mentioned there now that when you came to menopause, you understood a lot. Do you now look back at your mother and go, menopause was was happening there for some of, some, some of the stuff I'm remembering, yeah? Oh, 100% that happened to me about men- menopause. And I mean, I remember my mother being distressed at that time. And again, it's part of that self-absorption of young people. I remember thinking, oh God, she's crying and I'm trying to get out the door yeah. to college. And I, I was angry with her about that. And then you find yourself crying because there's no milk in the fridge or something. And, okay. you know, you figure out, oh, that's what that was about. And yeah. again, it's back to and the thing in the book. And it was a very different world then It as was well, never which, about which, me. Yeah. Um, and with your mother, she was in a different world going through the menopause as they, well, I think. You're from a different generation. It was yeah. something people didn't talk about. You didn't know yeah. what it was. You were alone. Yeah. You know, so again, it's that journey towards empathy. And now I feel for her. I think that's terrible. She didn't have anybody she could talk to about that. And there's me judging her. Uh, yeah. You And you must wish you could say it to her now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, the thing that I thought was interesting um, was the thing about that these kids are what you might call victims of bohemian parents. And I was thinking your mother um, was kind of had grew up in a bohemian kind of milieu as well, didn't she? Because her mother was Mary Lavin, the writer. Her mother was the writer, Mary Lavin. Her father died young. Things would have been a bit chaotic for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it, if you're a writer and I'd be really straight with you about this I haven't tried to figure it out it's very hard to figure out where fiction yeah and and personal experience end and you know I mentioned Bruce Springsteen whatever you take things from everywhere you take things from stories you hear about other people's lives you take people from things from your own life or your family's lives and you make some stuff up you know Yeah. Um, I think you just drop your nets and see what comes up Yeah. and then you come to this stage in a novel uh where you go out and talk about it and try to figure out where it was yeah, all sorry, coming from. Yeah, sorry, we're only figuring it out. <laughs> like I'm only figuring now. it yeah, out backwards yeah, now, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You, you wrote a, a wonderful piece recently about your grandmother, about Mary Lavin, and about uh, the, her, so so her home is at Lad Lane, which is near the canal there off Bagot Street. But well, the kind of salon that she ran there in a sense. Yeah, she was quite extraordinary. She had a farm in Mead, um, which is what where their family home was. And her husband died very young and very unexpectedly. And she had three girls who were all in school and in Dublin. So she bought a muse in Lad Lane. And I think it's described as a literary salon. I think she would have thrown her head back and <laughs> laughed at that. You know, she yeah. wasn't a pretentious person, but she was a single mother who liked to socialise who wanted to be plugged into the literary community. And the lads are all there in the pub, you know. Um, so what was she to do with teenage girls? Um, I think she was by nature a very, uh, very vivacious uh, person. She liked to cook. 
Um, so she made spaghetti bolognese and got in lots of Valpolicella and yeah. had people round to the house. Yeah. Excellent. And like we've been kind of um, we've been kind of lionising being and that whole image of the, 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 the lot of them around MacDades and everything else. But like that wasn't uh, it they wasn't never made spaghetti for bolognese yeah, for yeah. anybody. You so know? she had a different way of going. About no, she did say and afterwards, and, and, which I thought was so interesting that she made too much soup for too many people. Really? Yeah. And yeah. I wonder then and I really feel for her on that. Did she think it distracted her from the work? Could she have done more work if she hadn't been making the soup? You know, yeah. it's every woman's um, quandary. But, you know, with her, I mean, the amazing thing is. Some of those stories are from the 1940s. This is 1940s when her stories were first published, 1950s. Yeah. And I think I've only really come to understand that now. I'm a writer myself and trying to apply a living at this game. How good the work was and how hard the work was for her. And she managed, she's sitting in a farm in Mead with three kids. Yeah. And she writes these stories that put her on a level with the best writers worldwide of her generation. She has Salinger writing to her. She has Eudora Welty writing to her, telling her how much they love her work. Salinger recommended her to The New Yorker. I mean, I'm I'm telling you all this as a way of kind of just, you know, big, such respect for yeah, that. Yeah. In a detached way, not as my grandmother, as a writer. What an extraordinary... Did you, did you know her? Much? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I'm the oldest grandchild, so I was 26 when she died. Okay, um, yeah. But I think family aren't interested in what somebody does for a living. I don't know if your really? kids are yeah, interested yeah. in what you do for a living. I mean, Anne Enright mentioned this at the Book Awards. She got a Lifetime Achievement Award this year at the Book Awards and she gave a little shout out to her kids. She said, who don't give a damn. Yeah. And I think that's bang on. It's right. You know, family is pers- It's a personal space. We didn't really pay any attention to what really, Mary Lavin yeah. did. Yeah. Apart from, <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing the New Yorker magazines lying around and thinking, They'd cartoons I didn't really understand <laughs> in them, you yeah, know. Um, yeah. We didn't really pay any attention to it. Uh, it's only afterwards you go back and you read the work and you go, oh, right. OK. Do you know, there are a couple of stories that we we must have studied them in school or something, but they were kind of, there's one character sketch in particular, which I won't get into now because it, it, it would give away uh, a lot. But just a character sketch of a certain woman and her place in the family and how she plays everybody around her. And I, you know, I, it was something I knew, but Freud couldn't have written it. Like she, she, she was extraordinary at sketching. She was tremendously people, interested in people and character. Yeah, yeah. And the stories are still as modern. I mean, the Stinging Fly have just published an anthology of stories that were originally published by Sean O'Foylon and the Bell. Her story in it is an account of a guy mansplaining writing to her at a party. Yeah. It could have been written yesterday, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing is for a writer like her who's gone and not here to promote their work, it is a case of trying to keep the work in print. Um, we have these amazing agents for her now in London. So Mary Lavin has a new agent and they're looking at okay. new ways to new vehicles for her work. You know, and as the writer in the family, do you become the keeper of of her flame the, by the, default? The, the, I, I describe myself more as her gopher. You know, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it seems important to me to do any work that can be done to keep it going. You know, okay. Anyway, Mary Lavin, the movie. Yeah, we, we, we got we distracted off in Mary yeah, Lavin yeah, yeah. there, but 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 well worth remembering her and everything. Now. You didn't have a bohemian childhood, but you did have a kind of a peripatetic kind of uh, exciting childhood, didn't you? Your father kind of built bridges in Africa and so. In, in Africa and then in Latin America. Yeah. And uh, we lived 
we lived in Latin America. Okay, I'll be really, again, honest about this. For about three or four years, yeah. I've been trading off this ever since saying I grew up in Latin America. I think okay. it was like three, three to four years. Nicaragua and then Brazil. I think it is very formative in, in your experience is being that child, a small child. I'm talking about four, five, six, seven, going into a playground, different language. You know, you think of all the children coming here now from mm. Ukraine, from anywhere. It, it, I think that stays with you forever. I, I think that's probably part of what made me a writer because you're an and outsider and an observer, you know? Yeah, yeah. And also your books tend to have, uh, they're not too parochial. Like again, with the home scar, there is a kind of a global perspective to it and, and Mexico is in there. and Absolutely. And so I'm interested that. in that. I'm interested in language, you know, functioning in different languages, being a stranger to home, how important home is. And also obviously how you remember things. I mean, yeah. we were in Nicaragua in 1974 and my dad and I went back there about six years ago. It was 40 years, over 40 years yeah. later. And that was an amazing exercise in memory. I didn't remember much. I'd been four or five then. So I kind of needed him with me to show me the places. Um, but again, all of that goes into this book. How much do you remember from being a child? You know, I mean, yeah. in, the, in, the, in this novel, I'm exploring those, all those ideas of, I think the places of your childhood make such a strong impression on you. you but but. but what you remember is very fragmented. I think in the book I say it's almost like a film reel that's been in a fire yeah. and there's only bits, you know. Yeah. And you might remember, I mean, in the case of the characters in this novel, they remember the beach and they remember trips up and down the road. And I think they remember something problematic, but not what it was, Yeah. you know. Um, so when you discover afterwards, ah, that's what happened. Um, so childhood memories are so incomplete. Yeah, but they went back and dug up the drowned forest in a way they put they put it all together and, and kind of uh, it, it it enabled them to move on. Isn't that it? Like I think they had to reconstruct the story as yeah, adults. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a scene in the book where, where Cassie, the, 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 the daughter of this woman who has now since died, has this really visceral memory of being in the back of the car. And see, uh, that image is actually on the cover of the book. And I think, think to me, everybody remembers being in the back of the car. Totally. Parents yeah. in the front talking about something. What are they talking about? She remembers even the tan marks from her mum's bikini. And she remembers something passing between the people in the front of the car. But she doesn't remember what it is. And it's only in adulthood when you go back and find out. You find out something that as a child you wouldn't have been privy to or wouldn't have understood. And it's that process really of filling in the gaps in your story. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, and, and I know your dad died recently and I'm sorry for your loss. Did you, when you write a book like that and you're thinking about um, th them rediscovering, if you will, their their parents and all that, I know you don't, you, you, th your own parents are nothing like that, but did it, does it cause you to go back into thinking about your own parents again and thinking about the, your dad's story and then, then your, your dad dying as well must kind of cast you back as well? Yes, I think it's something that's difficult and troubling when you come to this stage of a novel is the filter between fact and fiction. Yeah. And you have, this is the point where you start examining it and you don't do that before now. And I think you're very conscious as well. You see, you write a book by yourself in a room yeah. and it's a safe space and then you bring it out into the world and there's other people. I mean, my life, I've siblings, I've, you know, other people. And yeah. I've worried about that at every stage, 
every novel I've written. Yeah. You know, I yeah. wrote a novel about a man who lost his wife. I, I have friends who've lost their wives, yes. you know. So you worry about stepping on other people's experiences. But even without putting without putting your parents into it, like, I know, they, they, I sometimes think that, and I'm, I'm kind of experiencing this myself at the moment, that when you're, when one of your parents dies, you suddenly see their story a lot more clearly or something, don't you? It allows you to suddenly get this clarity on them. Margaret Ashwood says we'll all become stories and that's it. Once the life is over, you see it as a narrative with a beginning and an end, don't you? And with my dad, definitely. My dad died last summer and at the end of last summer after an incredibly short illness and he had this marvellous life as you describe of adventure and he was yeah. a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, he picketed the American embassy during COVID telling Trump to stand down after he lost the election and he swam the Bosporus when he was 75. He had this incredible life full Fantastic. of adventure. Amazing yeah. man. Yeah. And uh when he died, actually, amazingly, I think he was looking back over his life as a story. Um, was he? Yeah. So as he came to the end? Last August, in the last few weeks, and we absolutely knew he was dying. He was dying of cancer. Literally, you could see the, the energy running out in him. And he was lying down much more. And I felt in the weeks before he died, I'd find myself at home. I live very near him of an evening and think... That's desperate that he's up there on his own and time is literally running out. I was so conscious of the fact that in a few weeks time he wouldn't be there. And I, on two or three occasions, rang him and said, Dad, would you like me to come up and sit with you? I don't like the thought of you being up there by yourself. And he said, no, Kathleen, thank you. I'm very happy here. I need the time. I'm thinking back over my life. And I've had such a wonderful life and I'm preparing myself now and I'm going back over it all in my head. Wow. We should all be so lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was sorting things out for himself and yeah. I think, yes, going back over it all, the story of his life. And I mean, back to the thing in the book, I was down in Connemara after that happened, shortly after he died. And I was thinking about how awful it is that we lose people. You know, it's desperate and I'm sorry that you've been Mm -hmm. through this yourself as well recently. And I mean, we know it's going to happen, but it's very painful when it does. And... I was down on a beach in Connemara with that huge sense of loss and fear of more loss and, you know, just the pain of it. And I was about to drive back to Dublin and I had just the most amazing realisation that this beautiful beach with the waves rolling in would always be there. Yeah. And that I was never going to lose that. And I think, again, that's something I very much wanted to come out of this novel. Landscape, the power of place... The comfort you can take from it, the wisdom of it. Yeah. Just watching those waves. And I think in this novel, that's something that roots these characters and gives them, in a way, a manner of connecting with their lives and understanding their lives by connecting back to landscape and place and history. Do you think, yeah, yeah. And you you get that when you go back down there. For sure. Connection, yeah. There are lots of people actually texting in about um, drone forests. Yeah. Yeah. There's a prehistoric forest off the north coast of Bray that can be seen on on a spring tide. Um, 
I've got to I go had there. some family members went up from Cork in search of those Connemara tree stumps. We met a man with a white horse. No one else was around. It was enchanting. It was 2014. And the cousin that made the trip with me has still died. I'm so happy we made that pilgrimage. So there it is. People, place, people I, going I to these places. I feel it. I'm telling you, you have yeah. this incredible sense of being in touch with something very, very old. It's an amazing thing. Yeah. Listen, I enjoyed the book all the more now that you've kind of talked around it like that with me. But um, it's called The Home Scar. And uh, it's wonderful. Kathleen McMahon. I know that probably wasn't the conversation either of us intended to have, but um, but thank Isn't you. That the way of it? Thank you very much. Thank you. Email brendan at rte.ie.